Chapter 13 The Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth, Mountaineer, Scout, and Pioneer, and Chief of the Crow Nation of Indians. Written from his own dictation by T.D. Bonner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. After fetting for about ten days among my new neighbors, I joined a small war party of about forty men, embodied for the ostensible purpose of capturing horses, but actually to kill their enemies. After advancing for three days, we fell in with a party of eleven of the Blood Indians, a band of the Blackfoot tribe, immemorial enemies of the Crows. Our chief ordered a charge upon them. I advanced directly upon their line and had struck down my man before the others came up. The others, after making a furious advance that threatened annihilation to our few foes, curvetted aside in Indian fashion, thus losing the effect of a first onset. I corrected this unwarlike custom. On this occasion, Seeing me engage hand-to-hand -hand with the enemy's whole force, they immediately came to my assistance, and the opposing party were quickly dispatched. I despoiled my victim of his gun, lance, war club, bow, and quiver of arrows. Now I was the greatest man in the party, for I had killed the first warrior. We then painted our faces black their mode of announcing victory, and rode back to the village, bearing eleven scalps. We entered the village singing and shouting, the crowds blocking up our way so that it was with difficulty we could get along. My wife met me at some distance from our lodge, and to her I gave my greatest trophy, the gun. My pretty sisters next presenting themselves for some share of my spoils. I gave them what remained, and they returned to their lodge, singing and dancing all the way. Their delight was unbounded in their new-found relative, who had drawn the first blood. My companions told how I had charged direct upon the enemy, how I struck down the first Indian at a blow, what strength there was in my arm, and a great deal more in my commendation. Again I was lionized and feted. Relatives I had not seen before now advanced and made my acquaintance. I was feasted by all the sachems and great braves of the village until their kindness nearly fatigued me to death, and I was glad to retire to my lodge to seek a season of quietude. It was a custom rigidly observed by the crows, when a son had drawn the first blood of the enemy, for the father to distribute all his property among the village, always largely recollecting his own kin in the proposed distribution. I saw that my achievement had ruined my poor old father. He seemed contented, however, to sacrifice his worldly goods to the prowess of his illustrious son. It was the crow's religion, and he was thoroughly orthodox. Another traditional memento was to paint a chief's coat with an image of the sun, and hang that, together with a scarlet blanket, 
in the top of a tree as an offering to the great spirit to propitiate him to continue his favorable regards. Several small bands of the village had a grand dance after the victory, each band by itself. I watched them for some time to see which band or clique contained the most active men. Having singled one, I broke into the ring and joined the performance with great heartiness. Then their shouts arose. The great brave, the antelope, has joined our band. And their dancing increased in vehemence, and their singing became more hilarious. By the act of joining their clique, I became incorporated with their number. For the next three weeks, I stayed at home, spending much of my time in trapping round the village. I was accompanied in these excursions by a fine and intelligent Indian who was without a relative. He was very successful in trapping. One day, we went to our traps as usual. He found eight fine beaver, but I had caught none. After flaying them, he offered me four of the skins. I looked at him in surprise, telling him they were caught in his traps, that they were his. Take them, said he. You are my friend. Your traps have been unlucky today. Previous to this, our success had been about equal. Then he wished me to sit down and have a talk with him. I sat down by him, and he began. My friend, said he, I am alone in the world. All my kindred are gone to the land of the Great Spirit. I now want one good friend, a confidential bosom friend, who will be my brother. I am a warrior, a brave, and so are you. You have been far away to the villages of the white man. Your eyes have seen much. You have now returned to your people. Will you be my friend and brother? Be as one man with me as long as you live. I readily acceded to all his desires. It is well, said he, and we must exchange traps. I agreed to it. Now we must exchange guns. It was done. So we went on until we had exchanged all our personal effects, including horse, clothing, and war implements. Now, said he, we are one while we live. What I know, you shall know. There must be no secret between us. We then proceeded to my father's lodge and acquainted him with the alliance we had entered into. He was much pleased at the occurrence and ever after received my allied brother as his son. But the assumed relationship debarred his ever entering the family as son-in-law, since the mutual adoption attached him as by ties of consanguinity. Shortly after, another war party was levied for an excursion after the enemy, or their horses, as occasion might offer. The party consisted of eighty or ninety warriors. My adopted brother inquired of me if I was going with the party. I told him I was, and asked the same question of him. No, he said. We are brothers. We must never both leave our village at once. When I go, 
you must stay. And when you go, I must stay. One of us must be here to see to the interest of the other. Should we both be killed, then who would mourn faithfully for the other? I was, as yet, but a private in the Crow Army, no commission having been conferred upon me for what little service I had seen. We started in the night, as is their custom, leaving the village one or two at a time. My brother came to me in the evening and expressed a wish to speak to me before I left and pointed to a place where he wished me to meet him alone as we passed out of the village. I went as appointed and found him there. He first asked me if I had done anything in the village. I did not clearly see the import of his question, and I innocently answered, No. Why, have you not been to war? Yes. Did the warriors not impart to you the war path secret? No. Ah, well, they will tell it you tomorrow. Go on, my brother. We all assembled together and marched on. In the forenoon we killed a fine fat buffalo and rested to take breakfast. The intestines were taken out and a portion of them cleansed and roasted. A long one was then brought into our mess, which numbered ten warriors who formed a circle every man taking hold of the intestine with his thumb and finger. In this position, very solemnly regarded by all in the circle, certain questions were propounded to each in relation to certain conduct in the village, which is of a nature unfit to be entered into here. They are religiously committed to a full and categorical answer to each inquiry, no matter whom their confession may implicate. Every illicit action they have committed since they last went to war is here exposed, together with the name of the faithless accomplice, even to the very date of the occurrence. All this is divulged to the medicine men on the return of the party, and it is by them noted down in a manner that it is never erased while the guilty confessor lives. Every new warrior at his initiation is conjured by the most sacred oaths never to divulge the war path secret to any woman on pain of instant death. He swears by his gun, his pipe, knife, earth, and sun, which are the most sacred oaths to the Indian, and are ever strictly observed. We marched on until we came to the Missouri River, and I was greatly edified at the novel manner in which we crossed the stream. A sufficient number of robes were brought to the river bank, and a puckering string run around the entire edge of one, drawing it together until it assumed a globulated form. Five or six guns, with other articles necessary to be kept dry, were put into it, together with a stone for ballast. An Indian would then attach one end of the string to the hide tub and, taking the other end in his teeth, swim across with a novel bark and toe. When unfreighted on the opposite shore, everything would be as dry as when embarked. Thus, all our freight was conveyed across in a very short time, and we recommenced our march. We had not proceeded far when our spies returned and reported that they had discovered a village of the Asni Bonds 
on Milk River, about 40 miles distant. We started for the village, intending to relieve them of a few of their horses, of which we thought they had more than their share. We reached there and succeeded in driving off nearly 300 head, but in recrossing the Missouri, we lost about one-third of them by drowning, in consequence of our crossing over a sandbar, in which, though covered with water, the animals became involved and perished. We reached home in safety with the remainder without being pursued. Indeed, on our whole route, we did not see an Indian. Although we brought no scalps, there was great rejoicing at our success. I received, in the distribution, 17 horses, which I gave to my friends, taking care to give my father a liberal share in the place of those he had previously parted with on my account. I had a month's interval at home. Visiting at my father's lodge one day, he asked me why I did not head a party myself and go on some expedition as leader. By doing so, he informed me, I stood a better chance of gaining promotion. Your medicine is good, said he, and the medicine of both will bring you great success. I replied that I had been domiciliated there so short a time that I did not wish to be too precipitate in pushing myself forward, and that I preferred to fight a while longer as a brave rather than risk the responsibility of being leader. He replied, Here is your brother-in-law. Take him. Also, your brothers will go with you. If they all get killed, so be it. I will cheerfully submit to old age without them and die alone. I reflected that, in order to advance by promotion, I must risk everything. So I consented to follow his advice. Black Panther, my brother-in-law, was anxious to follow me, and there were seven young striplings from 10 to 18 years old that my father called his sons, though in fact, half of them were what I called nephews. I put myself forward as the leader, the party comprising only two men and the above-mentioned seven boys. We departed from the village and pressed on to the headwaters of the Arkansas, coming directly to the Arapaho and Iaton villages. At night, we drove off 118 fine horses with which we moved on in all possible haste toward home. We were then about 300 miles from our village and 200 from the Crow country. In passing through the park, we discovered three Indians coming toward us, driving a small drove of horses. We concealed ourselves from their view by dropping back over the brow of a small hill directly in their route, until they had approached within ten steps of us. We raised the war hoop and rushed out on them, killing two of the three. The third was at a greater distance, driving the cattle, and when he saw the fate of his companions, he mounted one of the fleetest and was soon beyond pursuit. My company had achieved a great victory, the spoils of which were fourteen horses in addition to those already in our possession, two scalps, one gun, two battle axes, one lance, bow, quiver, etc. 
this trivial affair exalted my young brothers in their own esteem higher than the greatest veteran their village contained. During their return home, they were anticipating with untiring tongues the ovation that awaited them. We fell in with no more enemies on our way to the village. The horses we had captured from the three Indians had been stolen by them from the crows, and as a recovery of lost horses is a greater achievement in Indians' eyes than the original acquisition, our merit was in proportion. We entered singing with our faces blackened, bearing two scalps and other trophies, and driving 132 fine horses before us. The whole village resounded with the shouts with which our brethren and kindred welcomed us. I was hailed bravest of the brave, and my promotion appeared certain. My father and all his family rose greatly in popular favor. The antelope's distinguished skill and bravery were reflected in lucent rays upon their names. Great is the antelope, was chanted on all sides, the lost son of Big Bull. Their medicine is good and prosperous. There is one trait in Indian character which civilized society would derive much profit by imitating. Envy is a quality unknown to the savages. When a warrior has performed any deed of daring, his merit is freely accorded by all his associate braves. His deeds are extolled in every public and private reunion, and his name is an incentive to generous emulation. I never witnessed any envious attempt to derogate from the merit of a brave's achievement. No damning with faint praise. None. Willing to wound and yet afraid to strike. No faltering innuendos that the man has not accomplished so much after all. The same way with the women. When a woman's husband has distinguished himself, her neighbors, one and all, take a pride in rejoicing with her over her happiness. If a woman displays more ingenuity than common in ornamenting her husband's wardress or in adding any fancy work to her own habiliments, she at once becomes the pattern of the neighborhood. You see no flaws picked in her character because of her rising to note, no aspirations cast upon her birth or present standing. Such and such is her merit, and it is deserving of our praise. The fact perceived, it receives full acknowledgement. This leads to the natural conclusion that civilization in introducing the ostentation of display which is too frequently affected without sufficient ground to stand upon, warps the mind from the charity that is natural to it, and leads to all the petty strifes and scandalous tales and heart-burnings that embitter the lives of so many in civilized life. I now engaged in trapping until the latter part of December. I celebrated Christmas by myself, as the Indians knew nothing about the birth of our Savior, and it was hard to make them understand the nature of the event. At this time, a trading party started from our village for the Groven and Madden country, where there was a trading post established 
for the purpose of buying our winter supply of ammunition and tobacco and other necessary articles. I sent 30 beaver skins with directions what to purchase with their value and had marked my initials on all the skins. These letters were a mystery to the trader. He inquired of the crows who had marked the skins with those letters. They told him it was a crow, one of their braves who had lived with the whites. Kip, the trader, then sent an invitation to me to visit him at his fort. While our party was away, our village was attacked by a combined party of the Sioux and Rikiraz, numbering 2,500. So sudden was the attack that they inflicted considerable mischief upon us before we had a chance to collect our forces. But when we at length charged on them, it was decisive. We penetrated their ranks, throwing them into duress confusion, and they withdrew, leaving 253 dead on the field. Our loss was 31 killed and 160 wounded. They had supposed that nearly all the warriors had left the village when but a small party had gone, and they met with such a reception as they little expected. I had three horses killed under me, and my faithful battle-axe was red with the blood of the enemy to the end of the haft. Fourteen of the Sioux had fallen beneath it. Although we had taken such a number of scalps, there was no dancing or rejoicing. All were busied in attending the wounded or mourning their relatives slain. Their mourning consists in cutting and hacking themselves on every part of the body and keeping up a dismal moaning or howling for hours together. Many cut off their fingers in order to mourn through life or at least to wear the semblance of mourning. Hence the reason of so many Western Indians having lost one or more of their fingers and of the scars which disfigure their bodies. The crows fasten the remains of their dead in trees until their flesh is decayed. Their skeletons are then taken down and inhumed in caves. Sometimes, but not frequently, they kill the favorite horse of the deceased and bury him at the foot of the tree. But that custom is not followed so strictly with them as with most other tribes. I was specifically engaged in trapping during the ensuing winter, and the season being open and pleasant, I met with great success. Could I have disposed of my peltry in St. Louis? I should have been as rich as I coveted. In the month of March, 1826, a small war party of twenty men left our village on an excursion, and not one of them ever came back. Their pack dogs, used for carrying extra moccasins when a party goes to war, alone returning to intimate their fate. Another party was quickly dispatched, of whom I was appointed leader, and we soon came upon the remains of the massacred party which yet bore the marks of the weapons that had laid them low. There were also many fresh Indian tracks about the place, which led us to the inference that there were enemies near. We made immediate search for them, and had only marched about six miles when we came upon a village of nine lodges, which we instantly assaulted, 
killing every man but two. These were on a hill nearby, and as they made off, we did not follow them. My personal trophies in this encounter were one scalp and the equipments of its wearer. One young girl of about fourteen years and a little boy. We killed forty-eight of the enemy and took six women prisoners, together with a large drove of horses and a valuable stock of beaver, otter, and other skins, with which we returned to the village. There was great rejoicing again. Not one of our party was scratched, and the beaver skins, to the number of 163, were bestowed upon me for my skill and command. Before we made the assault, we felt convinced that this was the party who had killed our missing friends, and our convictions were substantiated subsequently by recognizing several weapons in their possession which had formerly belonged to our braves. Indeed, some of our women prisoners acknowledged that our departed brethren had killed many of their people. The Crows treat the women whom they take prisoners much better than other tribes do. They do not impose upon them a harder lot than their own women endure, and they allow them to marry into the tribe, after which they are in equal fellowship with them. On finding themselves captives, they generally mourn a day or two, but their grief quickly subsides, and they seem to care no farther for their violent removal from their own people. At this time, the crows were incessantly at war with all the tribes within their reach, with the exception of the snakes and the flatheads. And they did not escape frequent ruptures with them, brought about by the Indians' universal obtuseness as to all law relating to the right of property in horses. The crows could raise an army of 16,000 warriors, and, although there were tribes much more numerous, there were none could match them in an open fight. The Comanches and Apaches have tilted lances with them repeatedly, and invariably to their discomfiture. If the crows ever suffered defeat, it was when overwhelmed by numbers. One principal cause of their marked superiority was their plentiful supply of guns and ammunition, which the whites always more readily exchanged to them on account of their well-proved fidelity to the white man. When other tribes were constrained to leave their firearms in their lodges for want of ammunition, the crows would have plenty, and could use their arms with great effect against an enemy which had only bow and arrows to shoot with. Farther, they were the most expert horsemen of any Indian tribe, notwithstanding the great name bestowed upon the Comanches and Apaches, those two great terrors of northern Mexico. I have seen them all, and consider myself in a position to judge, although some, perhaps, will say that I am prejudiced in favor of the crows, seeing that I am one myself. Previous to my going among the crows, the smallpox had been ravaging their camp, carrying them away in thousands until, as I was informed by themselves, their number was reduced by that fatal Indian scourge to little better than one half. None of their medicine would arrest its course. After our last mentioned victory, the crows met with numerous reverses, which were attended with severe loss of life. 
In their small war parties going out on marauding expeditions, I had never much confidence, although individually they were good warriors. Therefore, I never took part with them until six or eight of their parties would come back severely handled and many of their braves slain. Thus, their reverses accumulated until the whole village was one scene of mourning, numbers of them being self-mangled in the most shocking manner, and the blood trickling from their heads down to the ground. Some had lost a father, some a brother, some a sweetheart. In short, their appearance was too fearful to look upon, and their cries were too painful to hear. When the last party came in, defeated with serious loss, I had just returned with a party from the pursuit of horse thieves. We had brought in four scalps, and were performing the scalp dance in honor of the event. On hearing the disastrous news of the return of the defeated party, we arrested the dance, and I retired into my lodge. Soon, however, a crowd of women came and lifted it directly from over me, leaving me in the open air. They then threw before me immense quantities of all kinds of goods, leggings, moccasins, and other things, until I was nearly covered with their miscellaneous offerings. I called out, Enough! I am aroused! I will go with your warriors and revenge the death of your friends. They were all satisfied and stood still. The news then circulated through the village that the antelope was aroused and himself going against the Cheyennes to revenge the death of their braves. I had as yet met with no reverses since my translation. My medicine had always been good and true. I had never come home without scalps or spoils, and they began to associate my name with victory. The next day, five hundred warriors rallied round me, among whom were some who had suffered recent defeat, and their minds were burning for revenge. I sent forward fifty spies and moved cautiously on with the main body. My reputation was committed to my present success, and I took more than ordinary pains to vindicate the cause they had entrusted to my care. Every man was well-armed and mounted, and I had full confidence in our ability to give a good account of double our number. My command were very curious to learn my tactics. On one occasion, when they were completely harassing me with endless inquiries respecting my plan of attack, I told them if they would bring me a silver gray fox, unhurt, my medicine would be complete and that we were sure of a great victory. In a moment they left me and shortly returned with a live fox, which they had caught in a surround. I ordered them to choke it to death and then flay it. It was done, and the beautiful skin was handed to me. I wrapped it round my medicine bow and made a brief speech, informing them that the cunning of the fox had descended upon my head, and that my wiles would infallibly circumvent the enemy. Like another Alexander, I thus inspired confidence in the breasts of my soldiers, and the spirit I was infusing in others 
partly communicated itself to my own breast. Some of the spies now returned and informed me that they had discovered a village of Cheyennes containing 37 lodges. Well, said I, after learning where it was, now return and watch them strictly. If anything happens, acquaint me with it promptly. Away they went, but soon returned again to report that the enemy had moved down the creek, which was then called Antelope Creek, a small tributary of the Missouri, had passed through the cannon and were encamped at its mouth. I ordered them to send in all the spies except ten, and to direct those ten to keep a sharp lookout. I then determined to follow them down the cannon and attack them at the mouth, thus cutting off their retreat into the cannon. But again I was informed that the enemy had moved farther down and had encamped in the edge of the timber with the evident intention of remaining there. I approached their village with great caution, moving a few miles a day until I occupied a position on a hill near it where I had an almost bird's-eye view of the village underneath. I then sent all my extra horses, together with the boys and women, to the rear. I divided the warriors into three parties, reserving the smallest division of fifty men to myself. I placed the two chief divisions in juxtaposition, out of view of the enemy, and, with my small party, intended to descend upon the horses, thinking to draw them after me. My two concealed divisions would then enclose them as in a lane, and we, returning, would place them under a triple fire. I addressed them briefly, begging them to show the enemy they were crows, and brave ones too, and that, if they would strictly obey my directions, we could retrieve all our recent reverses. The two corps de main being in position, I was advancing with my small division when we came suddenly upon two of the enemy, whom we instantly killed and scalped. We rode on, being in full sight of the enemy, but they made no offer to come out of their camp. We tried every means to provoke them to advance. We shook our two scalps at them, yet reeking with blood, and tantalized them all we could, but they would not move. To have charged them as they were situated would have entailed upon us severe loss. We had taken two scalps without loss of blood, more glorious in an Indian's estimation than to take one hundred if a single life was sacrificed. We had braved our foes, we had stamped them as cowards, which is almost equal to death. So, contenting myself with what was done, I concluded to draw off my forces and return home. We were received at the village with deafening applause. Every face was washed of its morning paint. Gloom gave way to rejoicing, and the scalp dance was performed with enthusiasm and hilarity. I was illustrated with the distinguished name of Big Bowl, Bat-Tasarsh, and hailed as a deliverer by all the women in the village. A little girl, who had often asked me to marry her, came to me one day and with every opportunity insisted on my accepting her as my wife. I said, You are a very pretty girl, but you are but a child. When you are older, I will talk to you about it. <laughs>
but she was not to be put off. You are a great brave, she said, and braves have a right to paint the faces of their wives when they have killed the enemies of the crows. I am a little girl now, I know, but if I am your wife, you will paint my face when you return from the war, and I shall be proud that I am the wife of a great brave and can rejoice with the other women whose faces are painted by their brave husbands. You will also give me fine things, fine clothes, and scarlet cloth, and I can make you pretty leggings and moccasins, and take care of your war horses and war implements. The little innocent used such powerful appeals that, notwithstanding I had already seven wives and a lodge for each, I told her, she might be my wife. I took her to the lodge of one of my married sisters, told her that the little girl was my wife and that she would make her a good wood carrier, and that she must dress her up finely as became the spouse of a brave. My sister was much pleased and cheerfully carried out all my requests. As I shall have occasion to speak of this little girl again in connection with the medicine lodge, I shall say comparatively little of her at this time. I spent the summer very agreeably, being engaged most of the time in hunting buffalo and trapping beaver. I had now accumulated three full packs worth in market $3,000. One day I took a fancy to hunt mountain sheep and for company took my little wife with me. She was particularly intelligent and I found by her conversation that she surpassed my other wives in sense. She was full of talk and asked all manner of questions concerning my travels among the great lodges and villages of the white man. If the white squaws were as pretty as herself, and an endless variety of questions. I felt greatly pleased with her piquant curiosity and imparted much information to her. Fixing her deep black eyes full upon mine, she at length said, I intend some time in my life to go into the medicine lodge. I looked at her with astonishment. The dedication of a female to the service of the great spirit is a dangerous attempt. Like all forms of imposture, it requires a peculiar talent and fitness in the candidate who seeks to gain admission into the sacred lodge. The warpath secret is associated with administration with many other fearful ceremonies. The woman who succeeds in her ambitious project is an honored participant in the sacred service of the deity through life. But where one succeeds, numbers fail, and the failure entails instant death. Three years subsequent to this conversation, I shall have to relate how my little wife, in the breathless silence of 10,000 warriors, passed the fiery ordeal in safety and went triumphantly into the lodge of the Great Spirit. I had good success in hunting, killing a great number of sheep and carried their skins with me to the village. On arriving, I called at the lodge of my allied brother who insisted on my entering and taking a meal. I accepted his offer while my little wife ran home to communicate my great success in hunting. 
Our meal consisted of strips of dried buffalo tongue, which, as the Indians did not half cook it, was a dish I never partook of. What was served me on this occasion, however, was well done, and I ate a hearty meal. Supper completed, I was praising the viands and chanced to inquire what dish I had been eating. The woman replied that it was tongue and expressed by her looks that I must have known what it was. My friend, knowing that I had departed from my rule, inferred that I had infringed my medicine, and he started up in horror, shouting, Tongue! Tongue! You have ruined his medicine! Should our hero be slain in battle, you are a lost woman! The poor woman was half dead with fear, her features expressing the utmost horror. I issued from the lodge, bellowing in imitation of the buffalo, protruding my tongue and pawing up the ground like a bear in fury. This was in order to remove the spell that had settled over me and recover the strength of my medicine. I recovered at length and proceeded toward my lodge, commiserated by a large crowd, who all deplored the taking of the food as a lamentable accident. That same evening, the village was notified by the crier that on the following day there would be a surround, and all were summoned to attend. I accompanied the party, and the surround was made, several hundred buffaloes being enclosed. On charging among them to dispatch them, we discovered seven Blackfoot Indians who, finding retreat cut off from them, had hastily provided themselves with a sand fort. I struck one of the victims with a willow I had in my hand, and retired thereupon, declaring I had wounded the first enemy. This, I believe I have before mentioned, is a greater honor than to slay any number in battle. I had retired to a short distance and was standing looking at the fight, when a bullet discharged from the fort struck the dagger in my belt and laid me breathless on the ground. Recovering immediately, I arose and found myself bleeding at the mouth. Imagining the ball had penetrated some vital place, I gave myself up for dead. I was carried to the village by scores of warriors who, with me, supposed my wound to be mortal and were already deploring their warrior's fall. The medicine men surrounded me and searched for my wound, but behold, there was only a small discoloration to be seen. The skin was not perforated. The ball was afterward found where I fell, flattened as if struck with a hammer. It was then declared that I would recover. The enemy's bullets flattened in contact with my person. My medicine was infallible. I was impenetrable to wound. I did not afford them any light on the matter. As soon as the poor woman, who had entertained me at supper, heard that I was wounded, she left for another village and was not seen again for six months. Supposing herself to have been instrumental in destroying my medicine, and knowing that, if I died, her life would pay the forfeit of her carelessness, she did not dare to return. 
She chanced to see me unharmed at the village where she had taken refuge, and then she knew her life was redeemed. While the doctor and medicine men were going through their spells and incantations previous to uncovering my wound, my relatives, in their solitude for my life, offered profuse rewards if they would save me. Some offered twenty horses, some fifty, some more, in proportion as their wealth or liberality prompted. The doctors ransomed my life, and they received over five hundred horses for their achievement. One day, a slight dispute arose between one of the braves and myself about some trivial matter, and as both of us were equally obstinate in maintaining our views, we both became angry. My disputant remarked with great superciliousness, Ah, you pretend to be a brave, but you are no brave. We drew our battle axes at the same instant and rushed at each other, but before either had an opportunity to strike, the pipe was thrust between us, compelling us to desist, to disobey which is instant death. This is the duty of certain Indians who occupy the position of policemen in a city. They then said to my antagonist, You said that Big Bull was no brave. You lied. We all know that he is brave. Our enemies can testify to it. And you dare not deny it any more. Hereafter, if you wish to show which is the greatest brave, wait until you meet the enemy. Then we can decide, but never again attempt to take each other's lives. This interference procured peace. It was not long, however, before we both had a good opportunity to determine the question of our valor. A small party of thirty warriors was embodied, myself and my antagonists being of the number. After a short march, we fell in with a war party of eighteen Cheyennes, who, notwithstanding the disparity of numbers, accepted battle, well knowing that escape was impossible. I pointed out one of the enemy, who I could see by his dress and the peculiarity of his hair was a chief. You see him, I said? Well, we can decide which is the best man now. You charge directly against him by my side. This he readily consented to, but still I could detect in his countenance an expression which I deciphered. I would rather not. I saw the Indian we were about to attack open the pan of his gun and give it a slight tap with his hand to render its discharge certain. He presented his piece and took the most deliberate aim as we advanced side by side to the attack. The death of one of us seemed inevitable, and I did not like the feeling of suspense. A few spurrings of our chargers, and we were upon him. I seized the muzzle of his gun at the very instant that it exploded, and cut him down with the battle-axe in my right hand. My left cheek was filled with the powder from the discharge, the stains of which remain to this day. My rival did not even strike at the Indian I had killed. He then said to me, You are truly a great warrior and a great brave. 
I was wrong in saying what I did. We are now good friends. Our few enemies were quickly exterminated, the loss on our side being four wounded, including my powder wound. My fame was still farther celebrated, for I had again struck down the first man, who was a great chief, and had actually charged up to the muzzle of his gun, what few Indians have the stamina to do. On our return with the spoils of victory, we were warmly congratulated by the tribe, and I was still farther ennobled by the additional name of Bull's Robe, conferred on me by my father. It was now the fall of the year. I had been a crow for many moons. It was time to repair to the trading post to obtain what articles we needed. I determined to accompany the party and at least attend to the sale of my own effects. What peltry I had was worth $3,000 in St. Louis, and I was solicitous to obtain something like an equivalent in exchange for it. We proceeded to Fort Clark on the Missouri. I waited until the Indians had nearly completed their exchanges, speaking nothing but crow language, dressed like a crow, my hair as long as a crow's, and myself as black as a crow. No one at the post doubted my being a crow. Toward the conclusion of the business, one of my tribe inquired in his own language for Beheshe Beheshe. The clerk could not understand his want, and there was none of the article in sight for the Indian to point out. He at length called Kip to see if he could divine the Indian's meaning. I then said in English, Gentlemen, that Indian wants scarlet cloth. If a bombshell had exploded in the fort, they could not have been more astonished. Ah, said one of them, you speak English. Where did you learn it? With the white man. How long were you with the whites? More than twenty years. Where did you live with them? In St. Louis. In St. Louis? In St. Louis? You have lived twenty years in St. Louis? Then they scanned me closely from head to foot, and Kip said, If you have lived twenty years in St. Louis, I'll swear you are no crow. No, I am not. Then what may be your name? My name in English is James Beckworth. Good heavens! Why have I heard your name mentioned a thousand times? You were supposed dead, and you were so reported by Captain Sublet. I am not dead, as you see. I still move and breathe. This explains the mystery, he added, turning to the clerk, of those beaver skins being marked J.B. Well, well, if you are not a strange mortal. All this conversation was unintelligible to my crow brethren, who were evidently proud to see a crow talk so fluently to the white man. Now, I said, I have seen you transact your business without interposing with a word. You have cleared two or three thousand percent of your exchanges. I do not grudge it you, were I in your place I should do the same. But I want a little more liberal treatment. I have toiled hard for what I have obtained, and I want the worth of my earnings. I set my own price upon my property, and to the great astonishment of my Indian brethren, I returned with as large a bale of goods as theirs would altogether amount to. But as I have said, 
an indian is in no wise envious and instead of considering themselves unfairly used they rejoiced at the white man's profusion to me and supposed the overplus he had given me was an indemnity for the captivity they had held me in on our return i made various presents to all my wives some of whom i did not see for months together and to many other relatives i had still a good stock to trade upon and could exchange with my brethren at any rate i offered they placed implicit confidence in my integrity and a beaver skin exchanged with me for one plug of tobacco contented them better than to have exchanged it for two with the white man i had the fairest opportunity for the acquisition of an immense fortune that ever was placed in man's way by saying one word to the tribe i could have kept the white trader forever out of their territory and thus have gained the monopoly of the trade of the entire nation for any term of years that i am not now in possession of a fortune equal to that of an astor or gerard is solely the fault of my own indolence and i do not to this moment see how i came to neglect the golden opportunity while returning from the trading post we fell in with a party of about two hundred and fifty cheyenne warriors to oppose whom we numbered but two hundred warriors besides being encumbered with a still greater number of women as good fortune would have it they attacked us in the daytime while we were moving whereas had they but waited till we were encamped and our horses turned out i do not see how we could have escaped defeat in traveling every warrior led his war-horse by his side with lance and shield attached to the saddle the enemy was first seen by one of our scouts at some little distance from the main body on seeing they were discovered they gave chase to him and continued on until they came upon our whole party every man transferred himself to his war-horse and was instantly ready to receive them they advanced upon our line were received without wavering and finally driven back it was now our turn to attack we charged furiously with our whole force completely sweeping everything from before us and killing or disabling at least fifty of the enemy they rallied in return but the reception they met with soon put them to rout and they fled precipitately into the timber where we did not care to follow them our loss was severe nine warriors killed and thirteen wounded including myself who had received an arrow in the head not so serious however as to prevent me from doing duty we also lost one pack-horse laden with goods but no scalps we took eleven scalps upon the field and the cheyennes afterward confessed to the loss of fifty-six warriors when we lost a horse in the action the women would immediately supply its place with a fresh one we were nearly two hundred miles from home and we carried our dead all the way thither. on arriving at home i found my father greatly irritated he had lost two hundred and fifty head of horses from his own herd stolen by the blackfeet who had raised a general contribution from the whole village his voice was still for war and he insisted on giving immediate chase i dissuaded him from his intention representing to him his advanced years and promising to go myself and obtain satisfaction for his losses 
he reluctantly consented to this arrangement but four or five days after my departure on the errand his medicine became so strong that he started off with a party taking an opposite direction to the one i had gone on my party consisted of two hundred and twenty good warriors and my course lay for the headwaters of the arkansas and the arapaho country we fell in with no enemies on our way until we arrived at a village which contained upward of one hundred lodges we formed our plans for assaulting the place the next day when we discovered four white men whom we surrounded the poor fellows thought their last day was come and i was amused to overhear their conversation they will surely kill us all said one and what manner will they kill us asked another they may burn us suggested a third then they communed among themselves little thinking there was one overhearing them who sympathized with every apprehension they expressed they summed up their consultation by one saying if they attempt to kill us let us use our knives to the best advantage and sell our lives as dearly as possible gentlemen said i i will spare you that trouble great god they exclaimed mr beckworth is that you yes i replied that is my name you are perfectly safe but you must not leave our camp till tomorrow for what reason they inquired because there is a village close by which we mean to assault at daybreak and we do not wish our design to be known oh said they we should not communicate your designs and we did not even know of the village they then poured out before me a whole sea of misfortunes they had been trapping had met with very good success the indians had stolen their horses in attempting to cross the river by means of a badly constructed raft the raft had fallen to pieces and they had lost everything peltry guns and ammunition they were now making their way to new mexico with nothing to eat and no gun to kill game with they were among indians and were two or three hundred miles from the nearest settlements of new mexico i entertained them well while they stayed and after our assault in the morning i gave them two guns and twenty rounds of ammunition and counseled them to take advantage of the surprise of the indians to make good their escape one of the four afterward informed me that they reached the settlements in safety having killed a buffalo and a deer on the way we made the assault as appointed we were mounted on horses we had taken from the village during the night as indians go on horse stealing expeditions on foot i divided my force into two bodies giving my principal scout the command of one i gave orders to run off their horses without risking a battle if no opposition were offered but if they showed fight to kill whatever came in their way the arapahoes are very poor warriors but on this occasion they defended themselves with commendable zeal and bravery we were however compelled to kill fourteen of them for our own security before we could get their horses well started on our side we had four wounded and if they had not delayed to scout the fallen indians that might have been avoided we succeeded in driving away over sixteen hundred horses all well conditioned with which we arrived safely at home my father also returned about the same time with near three thousand head 
all superior animals. The bull's robe family had certainly done wonders, and we were entertained to the greatest feast I had ever seen. The whole village was illuminated with numerous faux de joie, and such dancing was never known before. I received another addition to my list of titles in commemoration of this event. The Enemy of Horses A feud now broke out, which had been long brewing, between two different parties in our village, one of which worshipped foxes, and the other worshipped dogs. The warriors of the latter party were called Dog Soldiers, of which I was the leader. The other party was led by Red Eyes. The quarrel originated about the prowess of the respective parties, and was fostered by Red Eyes on the part of the rival company, and by Yellow Belly, in Indian, Ereshires, a man in my company. This Ereshires was as brave an Indian as ever trod the plain, but he was also a very bad Indian. That is, he was disagreeable in his manners and very insulting in his conversation. Red Eyes was equally brave, but of a different disposition. He was a reserved pride. The braggadocio of Areshires offended him. This rivalry developed into an open rupture, and the pipe men were obliged to interfere to prevent open hostilities. At length, it was proposed, in order to cement a final peace between the two warriors, that each should select from his own party a certain number of men, and go and wage common war against some enemy. The question of bravery to be decided by the number of scalps brought in on each side. Red Eyes accordingly chose from his party eighteen of the best men, himself making the nineteenth men who would suffer death rather than show their backs to the enemy. Areshires, with his accustomed fanfaronade, said, I can beat that party with less men. I will only take sixteen men and bring in more scalps than they. He came to me and said, Enemy of horses, I want you to go with me and die with me. It is of no use for you to stay with this people. They are not brave any longer. Come with me, and we will enter the spirit land together, where the inhabitants are all brave. There is better hunting ground in the country of the great spirit. Come. I replied I would rather not go on such an errand. I have women to live for and defend against the enemies of the crows. That when I fought, I wished to destroy the enemy and preserve my own life. That, said I, is bravery and prudence combined. Ah, answered he, you a leader of the dog soldiers, and refuse to go? There are prettier women in the land of the great spirit than any of your squaws, and game in much greater abundance. I care nothing about my life. I am ready to go to the land of the great spirit. You must go with me. Perhaps your medicine will save not only yourself, but all of us. If so, it will be so much the better. I, not wishing to be thought cowardly, especially by Areshires, at length consented to accompany him, on the condition 
that he would stifle all harsh feeling against our brethren and let our expedition result as it would accept the decision in good faith and never refer to the past it is well he said let it be as your words speak the two parties started on different routes to the cheyenne country i regarded it as a foolhardy enterprise but if it resulted in the establishment of peace i was contented to take part in it at whatever personal sacrifice we used every precaution against a surprise and Oreshires willingly adapted his movements to my counsel for though he was as brave as a lion and fought with the utmost desperation he was very inconsiderate of consequences and had no power of calculating present combinations to come at a desired result after traveling about twenty days we arrived at a considerable elevation from whence we could see at some distance on the prairie about thirty of the enemy engaged in killing buffalo we could also see their village at a distance of three miles there is an opportunity said Arishares. now let us charge these indians in the open prairie no no i replied there are too many of them the cheyennes are brave warriors if you wish to carry home their scalps we must get into their path and waylay them by that means we shall kill many of them and run less risk of our own lives we shall gain more honor by preserving the lives of our warriors and taking back the scalps of the enemy than by sacrificing our lives in a rash and inconsiderate charge your words are true said he and we will do as you say then added i turn your robes the hair side out and follow me we wound our way down the trail through which they must necessarily pass to reach their village and kept on until we reached a place where there were three gullies worn by the passage of the water through the center gully the trail passed thus leaving a formidable position on each side in which an ambuscade had ample concealment i divided my party giving the command of one division to Arishares. We took our stations in the ditches on each side the trail, though not exactly opposite to each other. I directed the opposite party not to fire a gun until they should hear ours, and then each man to take the enemy in the order of precedence. The unsuspecting Cheyennes, as soon as they had finished butchering and dressing the buffalo, began to approach us in parties of from three to eight or ten their horses loaded with meat which they were bearing to the village when they were about a dozen abreast of my party i made a signal to fire and nine cheyennes fell before our balls and eight before those of a Arishares party some few of the enemy who had passed on hearing the guns returned to see what the matter was and three of them became victims to our bullets we all rushed from our hiding places then and some fell to scalping the prostrate foe and some to cutting the lashings of the meat in order to secure the horses the remainder keeping the surviving enemy at bay having taken twenty scalps we sprang upon the horses we had freed from their packs 
and retreated precipitately, for the enemy was coming in sight in great numbers. We made direct for the timber, and leaving our horses, took refuge in a rocky place in the mountain, where we considered ourselves protected for a while from their attacks. To storm us in front, they had to advance right in the face of our bullets, and to reach us in the rear, they had to take a circuitous route of several miles round the base of the mountain. The enemy evinced the utmost bravery as they made repeated assaults right up to the fortification that sheltered us. Their bullets showered around us without injury, but we could bring down one man at every discharge. To scalp them, however, was out of the question. During the combat, a great Cheyenne brave named Leg in the Water charged directly into our midst and aimed a deadly thrust with his lance at one of our braves. The warrior assailed instantly shivered the weapon with his battle axe and inflicted a ghastly wound in his assailant's shoulder with a second blow. He managed to escape, leaving his horse dead in our midst. By this time, we were encompassed with the enemy, which induced the belief in our minds that retreat would be the safest course. None of our party was wounded except Arestures, who had his arm broken with a bullet between the shoulder and elbow. He made light of the wound, only regretting that he could no longer discharge his gun, but he wielded his battle axe with his left hand as well as ever. When night came on, we evacuated our fortress, unperceived by our enemies. They, deeming our escape impossible, were quietly resting, intending to assault us with their whole force in the morning and take our scalps at all hazards. Moving with the stealth of a cat, we proceeded along the summit of a rocky cliff until we came to a cleft or ravine, through which we descended from the bluff to the bottom, which was covered with a heavy growth of timber. We then hastened home, arriving there on the 28th day from the time we left. They had given us over for lost, but when they saw us returning with 20 scalps, and only one of our party hurt. Their grief gave way to admiration, and we were hailed with shouts of applause. Our rival party, under Red Eyes, had returned five or six days previously, bringing with them seventeen scalps obtained at the loss of one man. Our party was declared the victor, since we had taken the greater number of scalps with the weaker party and without loss of life thus excelling our rivals in three several points. Red Eyes cheerfully acknowledged himself beaten. Good feeling was restored, and the subject of each other's bravery was never after discussed. We had still another advantage, inasmuch as we could dance a celebration they were deprived of, as they had lost a warrior. They, however, joined our party and wanted nothing in hardiness to render our dance sufficiently boisterous to suffice for the purpose of both. All the dancing is performed in the open air, with a solid ground for a floor. It consists of jumping up and down, intermixed with violent gestures and stamping. They keep time with a drum or tambourine, composed of antelope skin stretched over a hoop, 
the whole party singing during the performance. End of chapter 13